The Buddha said, one should not allow the mind to wander without. Neither should a bhikkhu allow the mind to stop within. A bhikkhu who is able to be mindful in that way will eventually be able to extinguish all suffering. Wandering without is the discursive thinking that many of us have been doing the past few days. And he also goes on in the Sutta uh, Satipatthana Sutta to advise monks to be ardent, alert, mindful, awake, and to put aside greed and distress with reference to the world. And the greed and distress are the five hindrances that block the natural unity of our minds. One of the words used to describe them is nivarana, which means closing a door, obstructing, obstructing us from attaining this unity of mind, the clarity, concentration. And the five hindrances, of course, as you know, are greed, hatred and delusion, some form of those. Desire, of course, is greed, ill will, aversion, and then sleepiness, sloth and torpor, restlessness and doubt are forms of delusion. And they all block our ability to go through the door into absorption or into deeper concentration, and they weaken wisdom and discernment. And what I'd like to talk about is ways of working with them and ways of enhancing our concentration. I like these two analogies that the Buddha talked about for abandoning the hindrances. The first is to suppose that there's a river and it's flowing down from the mountains going far, its current swift, carrying everything with it. And if we were to open watercourses leading off from both sides, the current in the middle of the river would be interrupted, diverted, and dispersed. And it wouldn't go far, and its current wouldn't be swift. And in the same way, it wouldn't carry us to liberation. And if a monk hasn't rid himself of five hindrances, there's no possibility that one could travel to the end of the river. But if the river flowing down from the mountains, going swift and carrying everything with it, if the watercourses leading off from both sides are stopped, are cut off, then the river wouldn't be interrupted or diverted, and it would go far, and it would carry us to liberation. And so if we can rid ourselves of the five hindrances, we can be on that river that's moving to liberation. And another analogy that's Um, also I love, is that of gold. Um, And when gold is um, debased by five impurities, and they're usually tin, copper, lead, silver, um, some other metal I've forgotten. (laughs) Anyway, five of them. It isn't pliable, and you can't use it to make beautiful things. It's not luminous. It's brittle, and you can't work with it. And in the same way, when the mind is debased by aversion and desire and sleepiness and doubt and restlessness. You can't work with it. It's not pliable. Um, And it's brittle and um, leads to a lot of suffering. 
earlier today, um, I was taking a lot of exits down the river as I was attempting to prepare this talk. Um, I was able to connect maybe for a few moments with a few ideas, but I couldn't sustain it and I kept getting diverted into the exit that said 101 ways to distract yourself. And then there were little side branches that said chocolate and, <laughs> and a book that I wanted to read and a phone call to a friend. And so it's easy to take those, um, those side paths off and to forget to come back and connect, to forget our commitment to continuity. They're strong forces, and it really helps to recognize them and to know that they're present. So I'm going to describe some general approaches to working with them, and also some more specific antidotes. In particular, I'll be talking about the five jhanic factors that Philip introduced last night. And these five are vitaka and vicharya that he introduced last night, the connecting and sustaining, and then piti, which is rapt interest. Sometimes it's translated as rapture, but I find this rapt attention um, a more useful way of describing it, and it's joy. And then the fourth one, sukha, is happiness. And the fifth, ikagata, is one-pointedness, non-distraction, that um, clear, unified mind that just comes to one point. And all five of them, when they all come together and are well-developed, are the five factors that um, lead us into what's called access or neighborhood concentration. And as that deepens, um, we enter the first absorption, this state of deep mental unification, the first jhana. So all those come together. And I'd like to talk about first, before we talk about the ways we can use those, of some general ways of working with the hindrances. Because our attitude towards working with them is a little different in concentration practice than it is in Vipassana. In Vipassana, we're used to turning our attention away from the object and towards the actual hindrance itself. And then we investigate it, explore it, we're aware of its arising and passing, and um, it becomes the object of our attention. And in concentration practice, we allow the difficulty to be in the background and as best we can maintain our connection with the breath. So we turn our attention even further away. We don't take the exit at all. We have to notice that it's present. It's really important to notice that the hindrance is there, but we don't take the exit. We release it as soon as it's possible. Ajahn Chah has um, an analogy I like. It's that if you keep feeding stray cats, they'll keep coming around. And so the idea is to stop feeding them. And so we stop feeding the hindrances by not giving them attention. In other words, by starving them. And sometimes the ways that we know a hindrance is present can be just a feeling of tension or irritation or sleepiness or doubt, any of those. But it's important that we recognize they're there because if we don't, they cause, they just stop our practice. 
overall, the ways we work with them are a little similar to the four, four wise efforts that some of you are familiar with. In other words, we cultivate and maintain um, supportive things in our practice, and we avoid and abandon the difficulties as best we can. In the suttas, it talks about avoiding bramble patches, cesspools, and associating with bad friends. Um, But we know what the particular exits are for us that we get caught in. Um, And you've met some of them today. It it could be um, extremely enticing sexual fantasy. Or there might be an exit that says fourth jhana or bust. Or, you know, any one of a number of different tempting exits or irritating exits that we get caught in. Um, A a Thai woman, um, Ki Nanayan, who was um, a very wonderful lay um, Buddhist nun um, who's who's dead now, she said, don't let um, the hindrances eat. Whatever it is that they're addicted to, stop them eating. Try and see if you can engage your mind with the breath in the same way that your mind's been engaged with the hindrances. So the same kind of absorption that we can get giving to the hindrances, move that over and give it to the breath. So that the defilements, she said, get dispersed with every in-breath and out-breath. And some of that is about our intention. It's remembering to keep coming back. And it's also part of our attitude. Attitude both towards the breath and also towards the hindrances themselves. We can notice the quality of our paying attention. And if we sense that there's um, desire or expectation between us and the breath, then we're practicing with desire. If there's an expectation, if we're trying to create an experience, we're practicing wanting. If we're trying to reject what's happening, we're practicing with aversion. And if we notice that there's anxiety between us and the breath or worry, then maybe we're practicing with restlessness or doubt. So we notice what the attitude is and as best we can cultivate acceptance of how the breath actually is or acceptance of how we are with each moment. So we notice the quality of our attention. And we also notice how we connect and return to the breath. Are we returning with aversion and irritation all the time, or maybe with impatience or boredom or anxiety? Often we come back with recrimination. Oh shit, I was gone again. Could we try, thank you for coming back? appreciating ourselves for returning rather than spending time on recrimination. So it's simply reconnecting again rather than um, having a story about how long we were gone for or giving ourselves a hard time. So those are just some general things that we are aware of our attitude as we practice and also that we're aware when we're caught that it's possible to abandon and let go of some of the stories, to not take the exit signs. Not that we have to cut them off harshly, but just to notice that there's a choice and it's possible not to go there.
So now I'd like to talk a little bit more about how we use the jhanic factors to support and protect our practice. And the first two, um, Vitaka and Vinchara, that Philip mentioned last night, um, are the movement towards Vitaka, the aiming of the attention towards the object and the connecting with it, and then the sustaining there. And an analogy that one of my teachers, Upandita, used was that of aiming and rubbing. And it's like holding a brass cup, and the holding is the connecting, and with the other hand, you're rubbing, and you're sh so that it doesn't shine unless you have both together. Another analogy is the ringing of a bell. The striking of the bell is vitaka, and the ring, the experience, the ringing, is vichara. So it's that, um, really, the direct experience is the sustaining. So there's the connecting to the breath, and then there's the actual experience of the breath that's not the thoughts about it, that there's the direct experience, free from noting or ideas about it, the actual experience. And even though the terms may be new to some of you, the actual experience of them is very familiar because that's what we do in our Vipassana practice. We connect with a variety of objects and we sustain our attention with them. We experience the sensations. However, Vitaka itself can be unskillful if we direct our attention to sense pleasures, food thoughts, fantasies, um, or maybe cruel and judgmental thoughts. We can connect, keep connecting with something that's not going in a useful direction. And so we need to be connecting with something wholesome like the breath or with loving kindness or one of the meditation objects that um, Philip was mentioning. And this similarly with Vichara, we can sustain our attention on long trains of thought um, and get carried away with them um, in stories and fantasies, and we can be sustaining our intention on that, and it's not going in a particular, particularly useful direction. And we've all had that experience in our Vipassana practice as well. It can be the noble story of me that's being sustained for hours and hours. So when the object is wholesome, um, it provides the foundation of our concentration practice. We direct and sustain, sustain our connection with reality, with what's actually happening with the breath. And we do it over and over, and that's where our patience and constancy come in. And we let go of our expectations of what's going to happen. We just simply keep doing it one moment after another. Clean slate, new beginning doesn't matter how long or how often we get lost, it's simply the coming back and the appreciation for coming back without judgment. Vitaka is an antidote to sloth and torpor, and that's a kind of compound hindrance. Um, I'm very familiar with it. It's one of my main hindrances, and particularly for me in concentration practice, because I find that um, as I relax and get more calm, often there's not quite enough energy because I tend to come from a busy life. And so as soon as I start to get calm, I'm gone. And so there's a stillness there 
but because there isn't enough energy, the sleepiness immediately comes in. And sometimes, um, so sloth is that kind of sleepiness, and torpor is the sort of dullness or inertia, it's that dull state. And sometimes it can be, feel very unpleasant. And one of the analogies is like being in prison. And you have a key, but you just can't get your act together to get up and unlock the door. So it's just really this sense of inertia. Or it's a pond covered with slime. And some years ago, I was sitting at Cloud Mountain where there is a pond, and it happened to be covered with slime. (laughs) And every time I walked past it, it would just sort of give me this little jolt um, and reminder about my sloth and torpor. So basically, there isn't enough energy. And what really helps is connecting over and over again. That's what brings the energy up. And sometimes we need aids to connect. Sometimes people find it helpful to use um, counting to keep connecting, to bring themselves back if they're really drowsy. You need to bring brightness and energy to the mind. And connecting with the breath can do that. if we do it in a way that's um, opening and refreshing rather than striving and forcing. Um, And sometimes it helps to open our eyes. Some people find using the word budo, which um, is the one who knows, or being awake, has that quality of awake. So bud with the in-breath, do with the out-breath, just for a little while with the sleepiness there. And then once, the, once you're more awake, you can let it go. So each time there's a connection, there's the possibility for... Um, it's like the, the, sawing, um, the sawing wood that we've been talking about, or the rubbing sticks. Each time there's that connection, there's the possibility of, of wakening up. Um, one retreat when I was particularly sleepy, it, it would be, I would be falling asleep on the out-breath, and then the in-breath, I'd be waking up. And I noticed that it was the out-breath that I fell asleep on. And so I found that by breathing in a little more deeply and out less deeply, it was more arousing. And that if I let my out-breath be longer, it was um, soporific. So sometimes playing with the breath, bringing more interest in, can help. And I got really good at waking up on an in-breath. But the other thing I found was that not to get discouraged. Sometimes we can think that nothing is happening when we're just being with sleepiness for several sittings or however long it is in a row. But actually, we are building concentration. My experience has been often that I'm quite concentrated uh, because I've kept on connecting, even though I'm asleep awake, asleep awake over and over. So not to um, get discouraged by it. The next is vichara, and that sustained thought is the antidote for doubt. Doubt is such a difficult, it's one of the most difficult hindrances in our practice, and when we don't notice it, it can bring our practice to a standstill, um, because it's sneaky. comes up on us, and um, we find ourselves doubting. We doubt the practice. Am I doing it the right way? 
um, we compare ourselves. Maybe it would be better if I did it this way. We keep trying different things. It's hard to settle. And we're checking ourselves all the time. Self-doubt is the most debilitating of all. It's difficult enough when we doubt that this is the right practice for us. It's even harder when we're doubting ourselves or comparing ourselves because then we're unable to give ourselves fully to the practice and we get really stuck and lost. Um, The analogy is a muddy pond um, or traveling through a desert um, with no map. So we're just sort of groping around and we're lost. The reason that sustained thought or sustained attention helps is because when the mind is fully sustained on the breath, when we're observing and being intimate, we're not generating critical thoughts. So for the times that we're sustained, there's no space for the critical doubting thoughts. And we're connecting with experience and knowing it directly. We know the breath as it is in this moment. We know what's true for us in each moment. And we can actually start to feel a little deepening. And so faith and confidence builds. And there starts to be a little more clarity. And also, it's the connecting and sustaining start to deepen and start to deepen our awareness on our experience. And often doubt is a superficial thing. And it's sort of on the surface and catching. Many, um, many years ago, I remember seeing one of the Kung Fu movies, and um, Little Grasshopper was being taught by the old master to walk along this beam. I don't know whether any of you saw this particular movie. He was being taught to walk along a very narrow beam, like the gymnastics are walking along that's up high. And uh, so he had to use concentration to um, be on the beam. And he got very good at it. And then the day came for the big test that the master hadn't told him about. And there was the beam suspended over this pond. And he was told that in the pond were crocodiles. That's what he was told. And so, of course, the poor little guy gets on the beam. And as soon as he gets on the beam, he gets scared and he falls into the water. Now, there aren't really any crocodiles. But it was the master's demonstration that if you get caught in fear then doubt comes and you lose your concentration. So we're not going to ask you to walk across a pond. (laughs) But um, it really helps to connect and sustain your attention to eliminate doubt. And it helps to also bring continuity. And so that's why we're suggesting that you're with the breath, whatever it is you're doing, whether you're walking, whether you're eating, or whether you're um, going to your room, whatever it is, just to keep the continuity there. Because whenever there are lapses in our continuity, when we're not sustaining, we're not connecting, then there's room for hindrances. And the more continuous the practice is, the more we're able to sustain, then the less space there is for hindrances to arise. And so as we gradually get more settled and there's more flow with the sustaining, we're there for the whole duration of the in-breath, the whole duration of the out-breath. And we're there for the pauses between breaths. 
and we're able to move and to flow and then the hindrances don't have access and peace and happiness come and joy. Some of you were saying today that you noticed that often where you'd lose, where you lost the connection was with the out-breath, for example, either at the end of the out-breath or perhaps um, before the in-breath starts um, was a place. And so you can watch for that. Notice where it is that you lose the continuity, where it is that it's difficult to sustain it. And so as we connect and sustain and it becomes more continuous, joy and delight start to arise naturally as a result of that. And our attention starts to rest easily and spontaneously, and it's not an effort. And our attention becomes wrapped with with the breath, with the object, become absorbed and fascinated with it, and it feels delightful to stay with it. And because it, and it brings joy and delight, and it's not dependent on outside stimuli, on outside sense pleasures, and there's a sense of relief. And for that reason, it's an antidote to ill will or to aversion. And it refreshes us, and it feels very easeful and pleasant. And there are um, five categories that are described um, of rapture described in the Abhidhamma. And there's minor minor rapture of piti, momentary, where it's not sustained, and showering, where there are like waves through the body. And then uplifting, this is a sense of levitating, and this disturbs one's concentration. So it's not so useful to levitate. And then there's pervading um, rapture, where the whole body is suffused with these pleasant feelings of well-being. So it's a very pleasant, um, and it's, um, it's a, um, a mental factor, a mental formation, this sense of, of piti. And what I've found is that some of the states are not so pleasant, and that if I've had a lot of striving in my connecting and sustaining, then some of these states or products of concentration can be unpleasant. They can be sort of like electricity in the body. Sometimes there's involuntary movements or distortions or perceptions, distortions of perception. And they are just phenomena and they are temporary, but sometimes they're very tiring. And um, so it helps to notice the the attitude again of your connecting and sustaining. And if there's a pushing or a striving, sometimes the pity that arises cannot can be have kind of a rough edge to it or be tiring or exhausting. But when there's a, a more easeful rapt attention, there's a sense of delight. And it is a powerful antidote to ill will. And whether the Often when there's ill will, we're finding fault with our experience. We're finding fault with the breath. Um, We're dissatisfied. And when there's dissatisfaction, it kind of repels our attention away from the breath. And so it's helpful to notice when that is happening and to be aware that there's ill will. And so we're saying, I'm saying that um, rapture is an antidote to aversion. But how do you get from aversion to rapture? Um, This connecting and sustaining, we can intentionally cultivate. 
but we can't make rapture happen. And so we need, um, we need other tools to, in the early stages of our practice, the next, you know, these past few days or the next day or so, to, to work with ill will um, and to be able to be with aversion so that it doesn't take us away from the breath and prevent us from developing these this, um, uh, jhanic factors. So one of, the, one of the ways is to remember that it's possible to say no to these states of judgment or whatever it is. So if you've taken the exit that says, everything I didn't like about today, or 101 complaints, um, to have a sense that you can stop. Don't have to go in that direction. To notice that that's what you've started sustaining, that somehow you've connected with negativity and now you're sustaining your attention on that. So simply to reconnect with the breath again, to come back. And then if we notice that there's a version in the space between us and the breath, then to put friendliness in the spaces instead, to bring in some loving kindness, goodwill, metta, to hold the breath with kindness rather than with irritation. So we're cultivating appreciation. Sometimes when there's physical discomfort, when there's physical aversion to physical difficulty, um, it can help to use the breath to bring in um, caring to ourselves. Um, I find the phrases from the Mindfulness of Breathing Sutta very helpful. Just breathing in, aware of the, the difficulty. Breathing out, taking care. So even just as you breathe out, caring, caring. Or just some word like that where you're bringing in compassion to this difficult state in your body. So it, um, we, can also, we can also use the breath um, and alter it to have pleasant sensations. So if you notice that the breath has become unpleasant and difficult, then take a moment to adjust it. Adjust your posture. Adjust the way that you're breathing to bring in a way of pleasant and ease in the body rather than struggling or fighting with it. Sometimes there's a tendency to focus on what's wrong, and focusing on what's wrong can be a compelling energy. And so just to release that as best we can and redirect it, have the intention to redirect the energy. I found helpful um, some months ago in reading the brain studies, which... um, I'm sure many of you have read, that it's a survival value to focus on what's wrong. (laughs) That's a survival strategy to make sure that we don't get eaten or whatever, (laughs) um, to focus on what's wrong, to scan for what's wrong in the environment. And so respecting that that's a tendency, but also knowing that it's possible to focus on what's wholesome and to redirect that energy as compelling as it is. The next of these factors 
The fourth factor is sukha, happiness. And that's this feeling of pleasant ease. Um, and it's a more subtle than rapture. So it's as though the um, more um, excited energy, in a way, starts to die down. The, um, and sukha, or happiness, is a feeling tone, a vedana. It's a little different than piti. And it feels like a relief after the rapture, because there's a sense of more ease, contentment, peacefulness. There's a, a, a sweetness to it, in a way. And it evolves naturally from the rapture just by gently staying with the breath. And again, by having a relaxed attention, not by forcing or striving, but by not doing, simply maintaining a connection. And um, it's that sort of sense of contentment. And the analogies in the suttas are with piti, always rapture. It's like seeing the oasis in the distance. And there's all the anticipation of how cool it will be and what what it will be like to drink and to lie down and to relax in the shade. There's all the anticipation of that and the feeling of gladness or excitement. And then sukha is when we've had our drink and we're lying down in the shade and we're content and fulfilled. So there's that um, more a, a gradual cooling of the energy. And as that, is, it's then the antidote to restlessness, worry, dis-ease, or agitation. And restlessness is, again, like sloth and torpor, it's a sort of compound hindrance. And it has physical and mental components to it. Um, there's that restlessness of the body. Um, and then there's worry in the mind. Sometimes the worry is remorse or... or um, feelings of anxiety that come worrying about things. And often in our lives, restlessness is fed by multitasking and by doing, and by um, the sense of not enough and uh, not being content with how things are. It's um, call, it's the analogy is as a state of slavery where our emotions or the worry or the restlessness is our master and so we have no peace. And it was the analogy of the pool or the bowl of water. It's rippled and wavy and churned up. And when we begin to realize um, that this is here, when there starts to be... Um, Sorry, when we start to find pleasantness in the mind, then um, there's more ease and we find more contentment and the agitation and restlessness start to settle down of their own accord. The moment is enough just as it is. Um, we begin to be a little freer from preferences. So it starts to soothe the restlessness, this sense of contentment. There isn't that feeling of, I gotta get up and do something. There's more you're content to lie in the shade near the oasis. And sometimes as we're, as we're working in, um, in our practice with restlessness, different things can, ha can help. You may have heard different advice you know, on Vipassana retreats. Sometimes we're told to walk more slowly. Sometimes we're told to um, open things up. And what I've found it, is that if there's a tight 
tightness and striving that's led to restlessness, then it can help to have a more open space, like a bigger sense in your mind. And so you might want to breathe in and be aware of the whole body. So there's not such a narrow focus. Sometimes that tightness can give rise to agitated energy. And if that's what's been happening, then to open it out. And again, to maybe contemplate with the eyes open, just to give a sense of more space, to have a sense of vastness. Sometimes it can help to intentionally put our attention on stillness or on spaciousness around us. And if the anxiety is more a form of worrying, then I found it more helpful to bring my attention in to in um, and to connect and sustain a little more, to redirect my attention into vitaka and vicharya, or even to do counting, just to give the mind something to do so it's not so scattered and so anxious. Sometimes if there's been a lot of pity and there's excitement there, um, and it, you know, it feels like you're a little kid jumping up and down with all this energy that's in the body, um, then the intentionally bringing in calm and not doing can be very helpful. So you just leave things alone and the stillness. So bringing in calm intentionally can be very helpful. And again, if you're restless and agitated and there is no, um, there's no, um, not much connecting or sustaining, so there are no jhanic factors there, then using the breath to calm can be helpful. Um, and the phrases are breathing in calm or breathing out calming. And even just the words calming as you breathe in, calming as you breathe out. But the calming is not a doing. Sometimes I would find that I was trying to calm down, calm down, like to push the energy down, like you would to a little child who's jumping up and down, you know, calm down, sort of to push it down, um, as though you're trying to hold it, the agitation down. But it's not like that. It's more a releasing into calm or a letting go into calm. So you're letting the calm sort of pervade the body or opening into calm around you. So there's a trusting in that that's um, easeful. And then the last of the, of the factors, ikagata, ikagata, I'm not very good at my pronunciation, sorry about that, um, is this one-pointedness, non-distraction, um, it's clear, focused, unified mind. So all the other factors are present, um, and they all work up to this. They, they, um, it's like one adds to the other and builds to this beautiful place of unwavering completeness, where there's no outward flow of attention. So everything's being collected in to this one point, this one peak. It's just. And it's very beautiful and clear and still. And it's all being collected in. Um, there is a focus there, but it's not narrow or rigid. And one of our teachers, Ajahn Sumedho, calls it the one point that includes everything. So we're totally present with the moment-to-moment -moment experience. 
Nothing needs to be added, nothing needs to be different. It's timeless and it's very still. And there's a balance of energy and concentration. The energy of the piti has calmed down, so there's a sense of coolness rather than of... It's almost like um, some of you are familiar from years ago science of Brownian movement, where if there's a lot of particles, they all move together and there's a lot of heat. And here there's, there's just this sense of coolness, of stilling, of, of, less, of less movement. And this forms the antidote to desire. Because when we're one-pointed like this, there's no other thoughts or feelings or objects of mind other than the jhanic factors. We're not moving out towards wanting in any way. No desire can enter the mind because it's not moving out. And there's a sense of completeness or sufficiency, not needing anything. And the pleasant objects lose their power over the mind. That conditioning to keep wanting, to need something um, that was so prevalent in our culture, whether we want good meditation or more sukkah or chocolate at tea time, whatever it is that um, is, is being released, desire draws the attention away from the breath. It draws it towards the object, whatever it is that we want. Desire is drawing it away from the breath. That's why it gets in the way of our being able to become focused. And the one-pointedness is completely um, connected. And at one, there's a sense of not being dual. And so we're free from desire in that moment. The simile for desire is being in debt to our sense contacts. They have to keep being renewed. We can never have paid our debt. Um, And the traditional antidote uh, is generosity. As we're developing these factors before we are connected and um, before we're able to be one-pointed, the antidote is generosity. So rather than, what will I get out of this sitting? Um, What do I want? What do I expect? Rather than that, it's what can I give to this sitting? What can I, giving it more time when we're impatient? Um, Giving it a constant, kind attention. Being generous towards ourselves rather than wanting ourselves to be different the releasing of comparing mind. So our meditation then becomes a process of giving, giving our attention in a certain way rather than trying to get. And so then again, noticing what our attitude is, is really helpful. Not looking to explore it, but just to see what it is. And with desire, what can happen is the third and fourth factors, piti and sukha, are very compelling. And we can also develop desire and attachment to those states. Um, that's what the, the um, little piece I read at the beginning meant, stopping within. One should not allow the mind to wander without, neither should a bhikkhu allow the mind to stop within. 
because it's very compelling and tempting to stop within when these pleasant states arise. We can get lost in the pleasant. It's very subtle, and we need to be aware of it when it arises. It's not bad. Don't want to get rid of the pleasant, but just to recognize it and see that it's there. We're not wanting to stop with it. So we stay with the breath. We refine our attention to the breath when the pleasant arises, when the joy and happiness come. And we notice when we're clinging or holding or getting, um, getting caught in it. Um, I was sitting not that long ago this year at the Forest Refuge, and I'd, have, it was, um, I'd had a really um, concentrated and deeply absorbed state in the hall. And so I was sitting there very peaceful and um, very concentrated. And then I guess it, it, was, it was past a mealtime or something, and somebody came up to the back of the hall outside and started using the vacuum cleaner because it was their time to do their work meditation. And so it was a sudden, very loud, rawr, rawr, rawr. and so there was a sort of brief flicker of aversion. But because, um, because the jhanic factors were present, it just it dissolved. There was no, no access for it. But then what happened was my attention got shifted away. The connection was broken enough for me to become absorbed into the sound of the vacuum cleaner, which became very pleasant. And so there were these sort of orgasmic waves of sound flowing through me. And then after a few moments, I sort of realized, this is not going to lead to liberation. <laughs> um, and so when we're, it's easy to get absorbed into things that are not particularly useful. You know, I've been on retreats where I've got totally absorbed in tying my shoes, you know, or something that's very inane can become very pleasant and compelling. And so we need to be aware of when we're getting attached to those things. So I've found it helpful um, to make the intention, to keep reconnecting with the intention, I'm not here to have experiences, I'm here to see the truth me, I not get in my own way. And that's, um, that's a useful um, attitude to keep coming back to. Um, I also found that calming is a powerful antidote to desire. And when we can let go into it, it's, um, it begins that tranquility. Sorry, when we can let go into it, it brings tranquility. And um, when, there's, when, we have, when we have unreactive thought patterns, when there's tranquility there, the mind is free from grasping. And we're free from this wanting and leaning forward, leaning forward into wanting sukha, or wanting one-pointedness, or wanting jhana, or whatever it is. And in the same way that the anxious energy can relax back into calm, so can the wanting energy relax back into calm. When there's calmness there, there's that sense of freedom and release from the wanting energy that's reaching and looking out for some state and wants to know what it will be and what will happen next. Because that, that wanting to see what will happen next is bringing, bringing restless. It's a little doorway for hindrances to come through. And the calm helps to close that doorway.
So we're putting our attention on stillness can help that. However, we can get too calm. And then it gets very pleasant. And it's like being in, my experience, it's like being in this bath where you're very content and it's very peaceful. But then all of a sudden you notice that the water's cold. <laughs> Time to get out and reconnect again. And um, Steve will be talking more about uh, the balance of these factors of tranquility and concentration um, as we talk about the seven factors of enlightenment. But overall, when the hindrances are resolved, where um, if you add all the analogies together, we're free from debt, we're released from prison, we're emancipated from our slavery, we found a way out of the desert, and we found a safe place. We're secluded from the hindrances. On this same retreat I was telling you about, um, at one point, um, I was feeling secluded from the hindrances, and I had um, this sort of, what came into this space was a visual image or cartoon figures of all the hindrances, and they were sort of totally replete and happy and subdued. The aversion and the doubt and the restlessness were all sort of um, pacified and subdued and calm. And the desire, there was no needing anything. And so, you know, there was also, I was also really, really aware of how temporary that state was. And so that's an important piece, is to see how, um, even though we can have these moments, they're only, they're only there as long as, this, as these five factors or as the state, state of absorption lasts. The hindrances haven't been uprooted, they're temporarily being pacified. And it's still very freeing and very powerful. And for the times that that's true, we can see much more clearly the mind is bright and malleable. But it's temporary. And so we need to keep being on the lookout for them returning, for those moments of attachment and identification. So then, I've talked about some of the ways of working with the hindrances and of using the five jhanic factors as, as antidotes. And it's like a prescription for medicine. The medicine takes time to work. And the prescription of connecting and sustaining, you have to keep remembering to take it over and over. And if we keep taking it, we start to see the value of it and our faith deepens and our confidence deepens. And then even if we get lost in desire again, or even if we get caught in aversion when some beautiful state goes, we can reconnect again because we have the confidence that that's all it takes is to connect over and over and to sustain it. Where if you in the terms of the brain studies, in a way, we're recruiting. And that's what they've shown makes the brain more malleable. The brain is malleable if we keep recruiting. <laughs> and it requires us to be awake and persistent. And as they say, neurons that fire together, wire together. <laughs> so if we keep connecting and sustaining, 
that pathway becomes deeper and deeper in our minds. We're recruiting Vitaka and Vicharya over and over again. We're, and in doing that, we're starving the hindrances. We're not feeding them anymore, but we are feeding the factors. And so we're cultivating them. And by starving the hindrances, we're feeding these, these beautiful factors that lead to these absorbed and calm states of mind. The connecting is planting the seed. The sustaining is watering the seed. And then it starts to, to, um, to flower into joy and into pleasure or pleasant calm states and then into this beautiful, clear one-pointedness that takes us to a different level of concentration. And it's very powerful and beautiful. And it's possible for each of us to, to, um, to follow that pathway. However, it's also important to know that there are times when we just can't connect and sustain, and it feels really difficult. And I know that, that many of you have experienced that at different times. And when we're stuck, we need to remember our Vipassana practice. We need to remember to use those tools from time to time, particularly that sometimes it's just that a fit of aversion is like this. It's not personal, and it's not permanent. It's just like this. So we are aware aversion has arisen, and I'm caught in it. We're acknowledging it. And even just that acknowledgement is freeing. Or to bring in loving kindness when we do it, when we need it. And to notice when we've personalized something that's impersonal, when we've become the great one who had this incredible experience. Um, or the terrible one who had this awful one, whatever it is. So our intentions are really helpful, and our attitude, just to finish. And I've found sometimes on retreat, it can help me to make the intention to renounce indulging in complaining and whining. (laughs) in self-judgment, in doubt, in fantasies, in whatever it is, just to remind myself um, not to go down those exits. And then to just trust that the connecting and the sustaining will bring clarity and ease. So I think I'd like to finish there and just... um, have this wish for you that um, that the seeds of connection, the seeds of sustaining, might flourish, and that the hindrances might be starved, <laughs> and uh, just that um, we all find this way of opening into clarity and wisdom and clear seeing through our concentration. So let's sit together for a moment.
one should not allow the mind to wander without. Neither should one allow the mind to stop within. One who is able to be mindful in this way will eventually be able to extinguish all suffering. Thank you for connecting and sustaining your attention. And we'll be back at nine o'clock for sitting and then end the evening with some chanting. Yeah, and the, the sitting again this evening will be a half hour, before, 20 minutes and then chanting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.